Hello and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers when WH Smith thought it made perfect sense to give away American football stickers with every computer game they sold. In fact, we're so busy remembering that, that last time I forgot to tick the right box in the audio editing software and we got the Simon and Land the Chalk Drawings clip twice, so sorry about that. Anyway, I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody else ever seems to is writer Ray Earl. Ray! What are you up to and where can we find it? Okay, well, um, I'm currently living in Tasmania where I'm working on an Australian TV kids show about uh, football for girls. And uh, I had a book out tail end of last year. It's all in your head, which is doing really well. Thank you very much. That's how to sort of manage your head. And I'm writing lots of things I can't tell you about because I'm contracted not to. Which is, I love the subterfuge of the writing world. So there we are. (laughs) That's what's happening in my life right now there, Tim. Well, if you want to talk about subterfuge, then really, in an abstract way, we can't get much better than your first choice, which is represented by this. I do not question your dedications, Otar, but my best plans are always ruined by your incompetent lieutenant. My own sister leads this new mission. Mala... That is good news indeed. She is everything I could wish for. Beautiful, crafty, remorseless, and totally dedicated to the survival of Spectra. In Mala's hands, the mission cannot fail. You could not have made a choice that would please me more. Right, well, obviously that was Battle of the Planets, but that wouldn't really be anyone's choice on here, because it's remembered by too many people. But it's to do with an aspect of Battle of the Planets, which, to be honest with you, I'd more or less forgotten about. Ray... What was going on there? Okay, well, everybody remembers Battle of the Planets and everybody had somebody in the school who did a key-up impression and everybody wanted to be princess at my school and clearly couldn't be because they were a boy. Well, at the time it was quite rigid, um, but now you can do what you like, which is a good thing. My thing about Battle of the Planets is there's two, two episodes that really stick out in my mind. The one where pylons become live and start killing people, which to this day has made me frightened of triangles and I'm not keen on pylons and things like that. But the other one is when Zoltar is a woman. When he, in the better comments, is a woman, he's called Latros. Okay, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. But in my mind, Zoltar does some dastardly deed. They all defeat him. And then Zoltar rips off his fright wig and his, and his, his mask that he has. And he's got long hair. And they have a discussion where Princess says, oh, my God. Could Zoltar be a woman? And there's something that they say, which it can't be. A woman would never do that. There was some sort of real bad agenda that a woman could not be that evil. But they get, I might be just remembering my outrage as an eight-year-old seeing it, and it might not be true at all. But I remember that he ran off with all these flowing locks of like blonde hair, and that's why they thought he could be a girl. And it just really, it's just really stuck in my head. But when I've said it over the years, I have been poo-pooed and dismissed and told that I dreamt it. But no, I did not. Zoltar could have been a girl or was into metal, but she definitely had 1970s long flowing hair. Please tell me I'm right. You are absolutely right, because there's a bit of backstory to it, which is Battle of the Planets, as a lot of people listening will know, was an American re-edit of a Japanese series, which was actually a kind of anime aimed at adults. And as I'll come back to in a minute, sometimes it had some unpleasant overtones that didn't quite get lost in translation. Yes! But in the original one, Zoltar, or Bergkatze, I think it is in the original, was a hermaphrodite who, in 
at least one episode was female. And they covered it by saying it was Zoltar's sister in Battle of the Planets. Well, there you go. Right, I'm now completely... I feel like marching up to those who have wronged me in the past and saying, Zoltar was a woman! Or she was a maphrodite! Whatever, because I have been poo-pooed for years because of that. And it, it's weird, because isn't Seven Zark Seven... Wasn't he a complete Western creation to explain the story? Well, to explain the story, but also... I mean, there are wild tales of quite a bit being cut i mean i was quite disturbed recently to re-watch the one that was stayed with me was one called the fierce flowers where it's a two-parter where flowers just basically started coniferous flowers started eating women you know when you're a kid you just think oh no this is scary re-watching it there's obviously something quite unpleasant going on and there's quite obvious cuts where it cuts the seven zarks up and go oh my goodness me i'm not copying from r2d2 at all aren't g-force in trouble so I actually don't want to know what they were originally saying instead of could Zoltar be a woman because I don't know how nice it would have been. You see, I wonder if back in the day if there was somebody's job was to watch all of these and check them or if the BBC just took them as, oh, I'm sure they'll be fine without having any sort of real knowledge of the nuance of Japanese animation because... That sounds completely horrible, yet I do remember the series as horrible. It's not a series I remember with a great deal of affection at all, and I hated their uniforms. And I thought Keop, there was something sinister about Keop. And weren't they all orphans? Basically, it was horrible to him. <laughs> it was a horrible show shoved on to fill in a 20-minute gap. Jana from the Jungle would have been better. That would have been better than Battle of the Planets, which was actually, yeah, horrible. But there we are. Zoltar was a woman. I was right. Vindication won. I mean, the thing I think that most people remember, or rather particularly erstwhile male viewers remember, was I can't believe what you're saying about, you know, somebody at the BBC must have been their job to watch it and say, hang on, we can't have that. In the opening titles, when they do the Human Pyramid and spin-off, and Princess tumbles through the sky, and you see repeatedly her pants. Yes. And not just, you know, a kind flash. It's like almost in close-up. And quite detailed as well. And why did nobody notice that? Let's just hammer this down once and for all. Battle of the Planets was sweaty. And I think if we just hammer that down and put that there, we can just all agree that Battle of the Planets was a deeply unpleasant programme. It was shoved in there. Clearly it came over. Nobody had taken any notice. And it's one of these people that people probably remember with a great deal of nostalgia. But you watch it again. It was tawdry, horrible show. I think it pretty much was. I mean, my abiding memory of, really, of noticing something was up with it as a youngster was Mark, the leader, had the sort of metal bird that he threw. And it just used to cut to them sort of, like, recoiling in amazement, going, ah, and falling backwards. And these things, why do they do that? What is it about this metal bird that makes them so astonished they can't fight back? It's only years later I realised, probably, in the original, it probably sized through their throats or something. <laughs> something lovely like that. You know? So they could never obscure its message, no matter how much they tried. If it's rotten at the bottom, it'll be rotten to the top, and we will see through it. And that's what we have done today. We have exposed it for what it is. Moving on from that to your second choice from... I can't think of a better link than this, really. There's something quite unpleasant, or something actually quite rather sickly.
Okay, well that was technically that was some bubblegum pop from 1986, but oh, nice we're link, actually nice going to... <laughs> and yeah. that was smooth. That was well, smooth, yeah, mate. because we're going to be talking about bubblegum and pop as two distinct but combined entities from 1986. Ray, what are we blowing here? We're blowing rock and bubble, which, as far as I know, had one supplier in the UK, which was Dawn's Discount on Doughty Street, Stamford. Basically, you brought this packet, a bit like panini cards, but they revealed some playing cards featuring pop stars of the time. And this was about 86, 87, perhaps going into 88. I think they were from Europe. They featured pop stars. Yeah, you had your Tony Hadleys. Yeah, you had your boy George. Yeah, you had your Alison Moyet. But you also had the 1986 Belgium Eurovision Song Contest winner, Sandra Kim. No! Now, I know this because... You buy them much like panini cards. You didn't know what you were getting. I must have got Sandra Kim about 45 times. So you ended up with an incomplete deck of cards, but 40 of the same one. And I got Sandra Kim time after time after time. And I think I might have got CC Catch, who was another massive pop star in Europe. But of course, mercifully, did nothing in Britain at all. And I've not seen this bubblegum. You can find it on the Internet. I've, I've Googled it. It is on the Internet. But I've never heard of anybody in Britain having bought Rock and Bubble. I think literally it was available in one shop. I would love it. If, I think I've still got the cards at home. I'm still looking for like the Queen of Hearts because I've got endless Tony Hadley's, endless Nick Kershaw's. But not Howard Jones. It, it, it was it was very annoying. And there was nowhere, unlike Panini cards, to write in and say, I need this card. You were left alone with your mound of summer European hits. Well, I think you're right about it being European, because a quick look before, I noticed that one of the cards was the lead singer of The Outfield, who were that British <laughs> band that did nothing here. But they were apparently, so they told us, massive in Europe. And they were always on that ludicrous Montreux pop festival that used to be on yes. BBC in the summer holidays and so only in Europe would you have had a card of him yeah and I think Frau Lippo Lippi were as well now Frau Lippo Lippi if you remember were promoted to to high heaven was it shouldn't have to be like that great little tune only got us back to number 54 in the charts but huge in Germany and I think they were on the cards as well though that might be something I'm just imagining I basically put every I think Ryan Paris definitely had one put it like that it was it was it's, modern talking might have even been involved were they the same colour as the gum <laughs> They did have that unusual sheen to their faces. The gum was very pink. Actually, I've got a fantastic German dentist at the moment, and he will fill my mouth with cotton wool and drills and then say, oh, tell me about the football. <laughs> and then I just get I get my phone out and just play him modern talking. And he's, he's, once Brother Louis pumped up, it can quiet any national debate. I, I would love to know if anybody else ever had it because as i say i swear to god it was just one shop in lincolnshire in the 80s well i've actually got a remarkably similar pop bubblegum nobody else has heard of thing which is possibly a couple of years earlier than that i remember being given i don't know what on earth this was it was a series of replica album sleeves with a huge kind of almost cd sized disc of bubblegum in and the one that I had was Telecom by Gary Newman. I don't know why. I can't remember who gave it to me, but I had that sleeve for years. And obviously now I've got a CD vinyl replica of Telecom. And every time I see it, I think, what's that bubblegum doing there? But I don't know anyone else who had that 
or what it was or why it was or how it was cost effective for the manufacturer. Can I be honest? That that sounds a bit to me like a Woolworths special. That sounds a bit like something that Woolworths might have done at Christmas time or around about that time just to incentivize grandparents to buy people singles because they obviously grandparents especially then because old people really were properly old then didn't understand gary newman and i wonder if they incentivized confectionery because everybody can enjoy bubblegum i wonder if that was it that sounds woolies to me well it quite possibly is so if anyone can shed any light on either of those gums i'd be very interested to hear from you (laughs) tim how tragic are we that we're talking about bubblegum anyway you're right i'd love to know sadly i'd love to know there are some places google can't go you need other humans i find it quite reassuring so there you go well obviously you didn't complete that set but did you ever complete any sticker albums I'm sure you must have collected panini stickers at some point i had the smash hits ones every year i never completed them i never sent off for them but since then i have brought those collections off ebay i have to freely admit but i never had the discipline probably or the money to complete them when I was, uh, you know, actually at the time at school. But no, I, I never got a full Panini set. I was really always in admiration of people who did. Because that, that final writing in to get the stickers, that was... Didn't you have to get a postal order? We didn't have checks. Yeah, there was always one that you could never get that you had to send away for paying twice as much. For me, it was the middle of the sail barge in Return of the Jedi. Nobody <laughs> had that. And I remember sending off for that and getting it through the post, like, completing the album thinking... That wasn't really worth the whole process of sending off for it. You say that, though, but you're forgetting the joy. If there was a scented candle panini sticker backing, I would 100% buy it because that smell, the evocative stickiness, the the excitement of putting stuff in, because it was, it was like creating art, really, for lazy asses. I, I 100% would, would... Do they still do them, even, panini albums? They better do the football ones, don't they? Well, I'm fairly sure, he says in another really smooth link, <laughs> moving oh, on. Oh, nice. I'm fairly sure nobody <laughs> ever did a sticker album of this gentleman. Well, this is a bird, an immensely gifted bird. I promised you a sailor's hornpipe. You will not be disappointed. OK, well, that was Charles Brandreth being zany, of course, on TBAM. But we're not actually talking about his appearances on TBAM. We're talking about a game show that he did. Well, one of many game shows that he did. But this one was completely fallen off the radar. Ray, what was it? It's Puzzle Party. And I can remember the theme tune. I think the, the thing is, I've got two older brothers. So one's six years older and one's 10 years older. The one that's 10 years older than me, bless him, had to sit down and watch all the programmes that, that I watched. So his Camberwick Green, his Trumptonshire knowledge, for example, is superlative. You can give him any character. I, I gave him the, Mr. Platt the other day and he can just go, Crocs are like people. I mean, he's word perfect. The guy's unbelievable. It could be a mastermind subject. They remember everything. So to this day, my brother will still go, is it true a canoe when he comes from Peru? Puzzle party! Do you remember that? I don't remember it, actually. I'm for suspicion that something else was on on the other side because I would have been just about old enough to have seen it, but outvoted by having so many sisters, really. If somebody remotely hunky on the other side, there was no chance of seeing jolly, be-jumpered, wit-merchant doing... Wit-merchant? Apparently, it was sort of zany games in Puzzle Party. It was zany games. It was two teams, the coconuts versus the pineapples. It was... I've got a feeling it was Southern or TVS. 
but I might be wrong. They were cut down the middle. Brandjeff giving it all his wit merchant tree. It was fairly joyous, actually. I have to, I remember it with a great deal of affection, but I'm a bit of a quiz show nerd. So to me, the great quiz shows, obviously I love them, but I love the ones that don't quite work too, that have fallen off the radar. But yes, Puzzle Party was genius. I, I, I kind of, because I like Giles Brandreth, which is odd because I'm like a I'm a rampant socialist. He's quite clearly a Tory and I think he's quite lovely. I believe in Brandreth, I have to say. <laughs> well, I remember really loving he had a book when I was, I think, about six called Giles Brandreth's Daft Dictionary. It was a bit like the Uxbridge English Dictionary from Sorry, I Haven't a Clue, where it was a disconsolate, a record on after midnight, things like that catastrophe tiddles takes the prize and i remember loving that i loved him for his many stages of life i i I don't mind the jumper years of tvm i have to say but this was but you can't find a clip anywhere i mean many a time i've gone down a youtube hole i think i might have even tweeted giles brandridge and say have you got one because i'd love to see it again i'd love to hear the theme tune again just to know i actually didn't dream it up with my brother but yes it's very much of its time, Puzzle Party. It's a, do you know what I think it was? In a mad reversal of fortune, because really ITV rarely did cerebral things, I think it was a cerebral Checkers Place pop. Well, that's quite a concept, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it was, because when you think about it, the format was bar the pop. If you lose the pop and Checkers, the format of two teams... So in Cheggers, Reds and Yellows, in mm. Puzzle Party, Coconuts v Pineapples, it's almost the same. There wasn't any torch action at the end that I remember. But I wonder if it was ITV's attempt to be quite, to almost hit the, the intellectual high ground, nick the Cheggers format, shove in Brandreth and do that. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. I was just wondering which other sort of failed game shows you remember, because my big one, and I think Charles Brandon was in this as well, was it was on Sunday lunchtimes in kind of the late 70s, early 80s. It's called Cabbages and Kings, presented by Nigel Reese. And all I remember is that they just constantly, it just needs to be endlessly that they say that the boy stood on the burning deck thing and everyone went, <laughs> that seems to be the whole programme to me. Cabbages and Kings, Three Little Words, The Zodiac Game. The Zodiac Game, everyone remembers the theme to that that remembers it. That's a lift from a, a Supreme song, no matter what sign you are. What, the one that goes, Cancer, Scorpio, doesn't it go all through the star signs? It does. But that Supreme song, believe it or not, was later covered by Russell Grant on this album, Russell Grant's Zodiac Jukebox. <laughs> and have you got this album? I, I have got it. it, yes. Oh, mate, you just made me snort. I never knew one like that existed. Oh, that's wonderful. Russell, OK, I quite like Russell Grant. He's another jumpered one. You see, he was the Giles Brandreth in a jumper of, of breakfast time, wasn't he? It's amazing how these things mirror... Well, it's not amazing at all, it makes sense, but these things mirror each other. Yeah, so yes, Cabbages and Kings was very much that sort of thing. Failed game shows that everybody remembers, but you can't really remember three little words, Ray Allen. I mean, what was that about? Did he have Lord Charles with him or not? No, he had his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely, there was no... There was no Lord Charles. There was just his missus. And I think she was actually referred to as his missus. And that theme tune there was three little words. But you see, this is this is the odd thing because there was nothing to do in Lincolnshire. I was usually on about nine hours of television a day, I'd say. 
from transmitter information from Crawley Court, basically I watched everything. Of that ilk, square one with Joe Brown, which was based around a huge board game where you try to get back to square one. Pass the book with George Layden. Pass the book. Pass the book. Pass the book. Remember the theme tune? No. I think it was a bit like Chain Letters. I think with that, it was two married couples, and he basically was getting them to bicker, because I think they had to pass the questions to each other within the couples. I seem to remember it being that, so I wonder how many marriages survived being on that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be awful if you'd, you know, you'd got through a fairly stormy relationship only for it to be finished by an argument on a George Layton-based quiz the, show. Well, he was the writer of Don't Wait Up, so it kind of does fit. And then the other show that I, I would have been obsessed with finding, and this is very late in the day, this doesn't this doesn't arrive till, I'd say, 99, 2000, but it, it was hysterical for all the wrong reasons, is Nick Ross's The Syndicate. Do you remember that? I remember it existing. The, the brilliant thing about that is that is that Nick Ross tried to be this tough, unpleasant quizmaster couldn't really carry it off i think because he'd had years of saying please don't have nightmares it went it was a bit of a swap for him to go into angry quiz master so he gets the end of the show and go it's the syndicate understand and try to be sinister and i oh god it was so bad it was good it really was and then he'd tell people off he couldn't do it nick ross could not be in an Anne Robinson aggressive way. She can do it. He couldn't. So it was beguilingly awful. It was fabulous. But again, nothing exists of it anywhere that I can find. But it happened, Tim. It happened. You've given me an opportunity for another really, really terrible link, which is that from people trying to do sinister for adults and failing, we're going on to people trying to do sinister for children for some absolutely unfathomable reason and succeeding in a really horrible way. But you try and get out. You're just as much a prisoner. I can go. Martin, Martin. They'll never let you go as long as you live. You know that. You only had one chance and you chucked it away. Chance? Falcon Lee. Your only hope. A place to protect people like you from people like them. They've lied and lied again. No! Did you ever see these at Falcon Lee? There were no prisoners there. And you've left that for this. They'll suck you dry of every thought you have. Okay, well that still reminds me of being in absolute dread that this was going to be on. Coming home from school thinking, oh yeah, I'm not looking forward to after news round when that's on. So, Ray, assuming you felt the same about it, what was that? Look, I had a lot of time for the BBC. Was it about ten past five, the drama slot? Yes, it was, yeah. A couple of ones, actually, Breaking the Sun is the one that really started me off on BBC drama, but I think everybody remembers that. But then you had lesser-known ones, Codename Icarus, which played into that fantasy of some of us that we have as kids and uh, adults, where the government discovers that we're major geniuses and they need to use our skills for sinister aims. And basically, it was about this guy called Matthew, who was a failure at school, rubbish, rubbish at everything. But then they discovered he was a mathematical whiz and they took him to this special school to work for the government. And I can't really remember what happened, but there's an episode at the end of the episode where the government kills a pigeon. <laughs> and, really? which, yes, which doesn't, <laughs> which doesn't sound traumatic. But when it's in slow-mo with, like, with, with a scream, 
was absolutely and remember there was no neighbors at this point to bring you out into the you know you were left with this you were left with this image of this boy holding this pigeon offering it to the sky going no and it it really was terrifying and i love the way that that you know governments were absolutely portrayed as potentially dreadful things and i don't know if you could still do it now because everybody's trying to be so um i think there's such a such a people are trying to do the right thing that often they they will back out of anything that's remotely sinister or alarming or anything like that but yeah codename icarus was super i've no, i think in the end his parents just came to pick him up at his end of term and he went home with his tuck shop bag but in the interim with dead bird it, it was fantastic wasn't it a cold war thing the kids were working on some kind of thing to hold the world to nuclear ransom look i can't say for definite the stakes were big because to be honest once you've seen you know a dead bird it's very difficult to concentrate on the on the cold war elements never mind the annihilation of the entire you know human race there's there's a pigeon here tim and it's dead but i do know the stakes were high but i do know it as with a lot of those bbc dramas the last episode which you always kind of you couldn't wait for always went out with a bit of a fizzle yes it's like breaking the sun ended really neatly and and really shouldn't have ended that neatly but did not having seen that since the time i'm trying to recall for the benefit of anyone who's never seen it was a scene what's it about basically it's about an abused girl who ran away and does it end with the dad saying i'm sorry i won't be abusive anymore i've changed my exactly ways. right so basically i mean you couldn't you couldn't do this now so basically she is abused she runs and joins a theatre group that go on a barge. <laughs> it's not funny, but, I mean, think of that now. She just randomly hooks up with some adults and says, yes, come with us, you can play in our theatre group. And we yacht around the whole of four. We barge around the whole of Britain. It's definitely a, a, some sort of water transport involved. And, yeah, at the end, she gets she's at some sort of seaside resort and she's on top of, you know, one of those huge slides. And she's threatening to jump. And the stepfather says, and the stepfather, I think, was Terry the Chef from Faulty Towers. He was. Yeah. He says, you know, I won't do it, dear, anymore. I won't hit you anymore. Because she was we wet. She wet the bed as well, bless her. Uh, I mean, I have to say, it was it was gritty. It was really good. I'm not knocking it. But yeah, it tied. It had to tie itself up really neatly at the end, as they often did. Well, of course, the box delights. It's all a dream at the end, which I know that's based on a book, but I really felt cheated by that as a kid. Co- total cop out. Anything that's a dream at the end is a cop out. Another great series which was so shown by some ITV regions in the 80s. And I, I have met somebody who remembers this. I think it's one of the best TV series ever made, Under the Mountain, which is a show from New Zealand about two telepathic twins that try to stop these, these enormous worm people from taking over the earth. Doesn't sound good. That pitch is not strong, but it's absolutely fantastic. They're called the Wilberforce. It's a family of people of the mud, and they want to... Sh- turn basically all the earth into mud and oh my god it was terrifying had slight doom lord overtones from the from the eagle comic in the way that their faces melted and they became who they were because they had a human form they could turn into a worm but oh my god fantastic in fact it was made into a film about three or four years ago with sam neill but the film wasn't a patch on the tv series it really is true that they weren't afraid to frighten children then although the one that scared me the most it's a really weird example because it was a series I actually hated, a BBC drama in that slot called God's Wonderful Railway, about train-obsessed children from over the years. There was one where they were evacuated and one of the evacuees decided for some reason to take a huge bite 
out of a huge black toadstool with white spots on. And later on, saying to the sort of supervisor, Sir, I don't feel well. I think it's that fungus thing. Oh, my God. And then it never said what happened to him. Apart from in the next episode, somebody said to one of the characters, Oh, I heard about what happened with whatever his name was. And for days I was thinking, what happened to that kid? What became of him? They never said, but that really, really disturbed me. But can you imagine that being in a programme like that now? No, no. Not an off-screen fungi death, no. You wouldn't... (laughs) Well, we don't know that he actually did die. You might have just been violently ill. It was a death cap. It was part of the... Um, is it Amin- I could never say Aminata family. It was a death cap. I don't know if it was grown up in a rural area in the in the 70s, but we used to get shown the patches a lot. And you know, obviously, know of the patches. And the scene where the girl drinks weed killer, or is it fertilizer, and then is screaming in bed at night. I can hear that now. I, I was traumatized for life, but I was, I was meant to be. But I don't think you're meant to walk through fields with your mouth clamped together just in case some fertilizer or weed killer runs in. <laughs> Which is what it did, which is what it did to this anxious eight or nine year old. They were very, very keen on showing I think childhood horror, which you wouldn't get now. Well, Under the Mountain was actually based on a book by Morris G, who read the book. It's brilliant. He wrote another book called The Fire Razor, which was made into a series in the mid eighties, but I know that I won't embarrass them. But a previous guest on Looks Unfamiliar has told me that they were so terrified by that that they wouldn't even look at the page of the Radio Times where the fire <laughs> racer was listed. I remember finding it quite oh comical as a, I would be no. you know, a cynical, I can't remember how old I was, maybe about 11 or 12 when it was on, but thinking, ah, this is a load of rubbish. It's about a stupid man starting fires and two children. No, Two no, children no, knew I... who he was, but nobody believed them. But obviously it didn't finish with the 70s. It went on and on this trend until they just stopped. That guy or that girl, whoever it was, not looking in the Radio Times at the page. I've got so much I can relate to that. Because almost if you don't look at it, then it doesn't exist. And if you just pass it over, then it can't get to you. I really get that. I think that is that, I, that makes sense. Don't take the mickey out of that because that makes perfect sense to me. If you can't see it in the listings, it's not really there. Well, on to your next choice then, which is something I doubt anyone ever noticed in the listings. Here's another midweek special from the Home Cookery Club. This one's very economical, but I think you'll agree it's substantial and appetising. That does look handsome. Is it full of good things, as usual? Just see for yourself. Lots of fresh vegetables, rich in vitamins, minerals and fibre. Yes, this is a really well-balanced dish with all the good things that we need for good health. And full of exciting flavours, too, I see. Yes, I always believe that sensible food should taste good, too. Too true. Oh, just peel those tomatoes for me, would you? That'll be a simple cross-cut and dip them in boiling water. That's right. Now the butter's sizzling, so in go the onion. Okay, you won't believe how long it took me to find that, but that is a clip from, right? Home Cookery Club. Oh, it was brilliant. If you've seen the Home Cookery Club, then you don't need another cookery series. They can... Jamie Oliver, Rick Stein, Keith Floyd... Actually, not Keith Floyd, but everybody else irrelevant once you've seen the home cookery club little five minute show think it came from central and it was a couple you never got to see their faces it was just no you never five minute show you never got to see their faces it was just their hands which doesn't sound very good but there was epic banter i mean (laughs) 
it was really well written. So as they were making the food, they would banter with each other. Just these disembodied hands would banter with each other. And I remember it as genuinely brilliant. The thing that it reminded me of at the time, because I was only just starting to watch this then, was the... The bits at the end of the Avengers where, you know, that music comes in going, and Steed and Tara or Emma are kind of basically going, hmm, very interesting, something about sex. Ho-ho, something about sex as well. And that's what the Home Cookery Club reminded me of, really. No, no, it wasn't, Tim. You're talking nonsense. The Home Cookery Club. The Home Cookery Club was much more nuanced than the end of the Avengers. It was in my head. I haven't seen it in 35 years, but in my head that had genuine warmth and comedy. God, if I see it now and it's rubbish, I shall be mortified. But no, it was it was lovely. I think it's the sort of thing that ended up on the end of tapes when people were recording. Yes, it was. It was so an end of tape show. That's exactly what it was, or a beginning of tape show, when you put it five minutes before. That's exactly what it was. And I'm not quite sure of the purpose of it. I mean, perhaps it replaced those five-minute fillers where you show a pop video in the, in the 80s that I remember. But, yeah, it was, it, was, it was wonderful. And I'm always surprised they haven't done – in a way, it was the forerunner of those clips on YouTube and Facebook where people are making stuff. It was ahead of its time, the Home Cookery Club. They didn't even know. I'd love to know who was in it. I'd, I'd find them on Twitter and I heartily congratulate them. I've tried and tried and I couldn't find who the voiceover artists are. It did seem to replace Farmhouse Kitchen though, which was entirely the opposite kind of show because that was what she called Dorothy Slato. No, Grace Mulligan, Grace Mulligan. I, I think Dorothy Slato did it at one point. I only remember the Grace Mulligan years and I remember that if anybody came on and did something that Grace Mulligan was not happy with, she made it known. She made it known. If you were if you were suggesting there was a different way to do shortcut pastry, Mulligan would not be having that. And I think I think the theme to farm as many as with many of these shows, the theme to Farmhouse Kitchen was so evocative of those I don't feel very well, but I'm not too bad, so I'm gonna stay at home kind of days. I mean, which are the best days? Oh, my God. If I could have one of those days at my nan's house, I'd be happy. Yeah, Farmhouse Kitchen was much more the dictatorship to to the Home Cookery Club's happy democracy. Well, the best thing about Farmhouse Kitchen, as far as I'm concerned, was the theme music. I'd always thought, you know, I wonder if it goes on longer than that. And then one day I got the library music album that it's on. And I thought, I wonder if it just lasts for 20 seconds. No, it doesn't. They go absolutely mad after that. Just like, because they've got to fill up three minutes and they've already done their bit, just going over the top of the organ solos and drum solos. And it's, it's like a bit of prog rock, really. Have you, well, on that note, have you heard the full theme of Picture Box? I have. Now, once you've heard that, you can't come back. I don't just mean from nostalgia, I mean in life generally. Once you've heard the full theme of Picture Box, because that goes weird, doesn't it? That goes off its face. Well, do you know what it was played on? It was played on instruments made out of bone. What? Seriously, it was done by a couple of sound sculptors from France who used to make sounds out of, you know, found objects and so on. And they'd made some instruments apparently out of bone that made these weird glissando noises. And that's what the picture box theme is played on. Uh, Tim, I was looking forward to this interview and I couldn't quite sort of like say why. But now I know because 
again, you've taken you've taken my suspicions and my unease about something, and you've explained it quite brilliantly. Because I think any of us that sat down and watched Picture Box at school or when you were off school, you were always a nerve. To be fair, the Canadian Film Foundation for Children were often involved, and they were clearly off their face a lot of the time. But yeah, again, that program left me with a deep sense of being tilted to one side. It's like the, the, the axis of the earth had gone slightly off kilter. And now you've explained why. It was basically music made out of dead people or dead animals. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which of those happy is the less terrifying happy, prospect, really. Happy schooling, kids. Watch this. <laughs> well, on to your last choice now, which may even be slightly less funny than that. This is our big chance. It's time for Chip and Pin. Little did we know that that was the beginning of an amazingly successful double act. Ladies and gentlemen, Fish and Cushion! Okay, well that was actually a clip of Mitchell and Webb doing the Chip and Pin sketch, but I've no doubt it was based on these characters. Ray, who were they? It's weird, it's Cheese and Onion, and I was reminded of this because I watched Inside Number 9 the other day, So, and they actually mentioned Cheese and Onion, and I thought, my God, I remember Cheese and Onion. So basically, after the death of Eric Morecambe, or, or just before, so Morecambe and Wise are... You know, people don't remember this, but after they moved to IT, the people do remember it. But people, what I'm saying is many people just see the career of Morecambe Wise as just this halcyon, forever bright, magnesium tape, brightness kind of shine. But actually, by the time they got to ITV, it was I remember the endless conjecture they're going off the boil. And they had, you know, because Eric wasn't very well. So they were looking for people to replace them in the magic double act way and cheese and onion came along and all i remember is they had a graffiti wall or some sort of wall at the back of them with their names on and they were being pushed and pushed and pushed i have derek hobson in my mind that he did something with them but that might be my brain mashing up a new faces thing i'm not sure i could see even at my age that they were being really hammered and people really wanted you to take them but there was nothing there there was, I could see in my little brain, there was nothing there. They, they were just not funny. And to this, or oh, they just didn't work together as, as a duo. And to this day, I, I remember feeling, you know that sense of discomfort you have when things aren't quite working on television? This real feeling that, that it just wasn't working. And they knew it wasn't working. And everybody around them knew it wasn't working. But I remember thinking, well, why are they persevering with them? Perhaps they think it was, perhaps they think, Perhaps they're brilliant in, in holiday resorts and things like that, which makes me think it was also the forerunner of Joe Beasley and Cheeky Monkey. Things that, you know, work outside, but then you translate them to television, they don't quite work. And to this day, Cheese and Onion still makes me feel a bit off kilter because I, I know there's something not quite right. There were no cannon and ball, put it like that. That's a quite damning <laughs> uh, statement, really. But um, I've, I've looked into this. I found out because everything online you can find out about them, nobody can remember the name of the programme that they were on. Apparently, they headlined a series called Funny Bone on ITV in 1982 on Saturday nights, which was a showcase for a number of up-and-coming people, none of whom seem to have done anything afterwards. I mean, even I had never heard of any of them. Malk Stent, Sonny Hayes and Co, and Nina Finberg. No, no, I don't know any of those. 
Okay, so we're talking about the interim period between New Faces and Tim Brooke Taylor's The Fame Game, I'm thinking. So we're talking in, so I've mashed up in my head that Derek Hobson was hosting it, but I doubt that he was. When you think about it, with the choice of channels that was available then, we would have watched that. Even though you don't remember it, you, you would, if you weren't watching BBC, you would have been watching ITV. Unless you were a sued and you were into something on BBC Two about opera in Korea or whatever. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I think that that would make sense that I saw it, but I have no recollection of the show, but I do remember that because I remember my discomfort because they just couldn't quite, it wasn't quite working. That sounds like a summer show. That sounds like an August kind of show. Have you got the dates it was on? Yes, you are right. It was on in June and July, 1982. Yeah, it sounds summery to me. It sounds like summer schedule. So your big shows have ended and you're shoving in this. Yeah, that's got summer schedule written. Like, and it's also that end of the peer humour that was still big then because people still went to Skeggy. Well, they still do now. But really then you went to Skeggy, you went to Blackport and you it was the end of the peer kind of show. And I felt that somehow cheese and onion you know had done great summer seasons but didn't work on television as did Morecambe and Wise not work on television when they first started but obviously they had the immense talent and the sense to make it work but yeah cheese and onion I wonder if they're still about I did look up they split up in about 1982 or 83 and I wondered if that was related to Walker's Crisps messing about with the colours for cheese and onion and salt and vinegar (laughs) (laughs) I thought there's no future in this game now lads we've built this branding up and they've gone and messed with it but they're retired now so well bless them I mean I, I wish them all the very best but it was it was kind of the first experience I remember and I'm sure there were more with things not quite working on television and the discomfort of of things not quite working because I'd only ever seen comedians till then that were very polished or other people were laughing at even if I didn't find them funny other people were laughing at this was just that discomfort thing which which sticks long in the mind Tim the one that I remember having much the same feelings over was quite a different thing really but on blue peter they had you know marvin the paranoid android did the single when the tv hitchhikers was on he performed it on blue peter so it's just a marvin costume standing there while the record played i remember even as a young child thinking i feel sorry for everyone involved in this (laughs) i think i remember that tune was it every day every day marvin that's all there was to it yeah <laughs> and it was just him in a monotone wasn't it yeah all but the, it, it was yeah, just the costume stood there with <laughs> just the record playing over it good old bbc cross promotion now that's pretty beautiful <laughs> blimey God, why is that in my head fantastic i've known that i'm gonna have to look that up now if there's a, bet there's a youtube clip of that surely well, as we haven't been able to find clips of quite a few of things, uh, we've got a couple of bonus things that we're squeezing in at the end. The first of which is the Gong Show replacing Countdown. Oh, beautiful. It's one of the best summers of my life. I'm useless at Countdown. Absolutely useless. If, if there's a nine-letter word, I'll get a three or a two. I'm absolutely appalling at it. I always have been. And, and numbers game, forget about it. And for one summer, and I think it might have been 85, 86, they for, I have no reason. I've got no understanding as to why, but it was beautiful. They put the gong show on. The gong show, of course, Chuck, Chuck Barris, uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Basically, you did your act, you were gonged off if you were bad. But they had this guy on as a filler. They used to get the technician and call him Gene Gene the Dancing Machine. They used to play this bit of music 
and he'd just appear and start dancing to Phil. And it was genius. It was such a good show. They had good acts on it. They had they had the disco lizards. I'm a disco lizard. Um, which was two people in skin tight sort of body stockings pretending to be lizard dancing to Walter Murphy's A Fifth of Beethoven. It was genius. It was anarchic. It was it was fabulous for that one summer. It was just it defied expectation. It was just fantastic. I never forget it. It was like the lunatic was taking over the asylum. It was just magnificent. And then Countdown came back on. Well, I remember that. But the main reason I remember it was they had that the unknown comic on the Gong Show, the, who was with the, the guy with the paper bag on his yeah, head. Yeah, who, yeah, yeah. When that was being shown on Channel Four, they obviously to cash in on it. They got him onto Game for a Laugh. Oh, I've no, absolute silence from the studio audience. I have Just, no recollection of and that I remember whatsoever. wondering if it was the same guy, whether, you know, he'd sent, he'd sent a sort of a substitute or known comic out for the UK, you know, sent someone, put a bag on your head, talk a bit American, so I don't have to, I don't have to go to all the expense of coming over, and then just bombed in front of the, the Beatle crazy audience. I have no recollection of that whatsoever, but that would, that would make sense, because I suppose Countdown for Channel 4 was quite a big show, so I'm sure there were quite a lot of people watching in that tea time slot, but it just seems so random. And as far as I know, it's never been on British television since. It's not been on Challenge TV or anything else. It was just that one beautiful summer where they put the gong show on instead of Countdown. And I think it was the same summer that BBC had Wait Till Your Father Gets Home, Heidi... And the kids from Fame. Yeah, now that's a real sort of roller coaster of quality there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not knocking Heidi. I'm saying nothing. <laughs> no, no, because as far as I'm concerned, that was no roller coaster. Because you've got the McCarthy neighbour in Wait Till Your Father Gets Home that's utterly brilliant. You've got Heidi. I mean, who cares what's happening in 20 minutes in, in between the theme? Because the theme is what you're there for. Kids from Fame was, was magnificent. So as far as yeah, I'm concerned, yeah. beautiful summer beautiful summer finally for your very very last choice you've actually beaten looks unfamiliar because i found absolutely nothing about this apart from one reference on the whole internet and finding a listing in tv times that said absolutely nothing so what on earth was the yellow house the yellow house i think it was american or canadian again this is my brother so this me and my brother remember this and it was a clown in a yellow house and children would come to visit him and there'd be like entertainment around, you know, his house. And the theme tune was, we're all going to the yellow house. And it was sad at the end when because the, the kids would leave and the clown would lean out the window and like he's crying so much. He had to wring his handkerchief out. We're all going to the yellow house. Dun, 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 dun. Right, I suspect that I probably saw this, and I suspect I've blocked it from my memory because it was I did traumatic. not get on with I did not get on with clowns with unusual endings as a child, particularly the end of Camberwick Green, particularly the test card, things like that. So I've probably like got a mental block on the Yellow House. I think the Yellow House was 
profoundly traumatic. What you had with that is you had a clown, which let's face it, all of us struggle with. And then you had the sort of ending where he was genuinely distressed. In fact, the more I think about this, the more I think it's probably Canadian because you had this image where the, the clown was genuinely distressed and wringing his handkerchief out and the kids just skipped away and waved. So it almost had like Puff the Magic Dragon, Selfish Giant kind of overtones of, of people in distress being left after a fun day, being discarded because they've, they've served their purpose. We're off. And it, it, I don't remember it with any fondness, but I do remember it really, really well. It might have even been before Paint Along with Nancy. We're talking about that kind of, and when I say paint along, I mean the ones where the bloke from H, with the Alan from HTV was still like co-hosting. So we're talking really early on. It was, I've looked for it everywhere. I did see the other day, and this was totally by chance, somebody, it might have been you, Tim, had posted the FA Cup when the FA Cup used to be a big deal. And the Yellow House was before that, was before all the FA Cup footage. And I thought, my God, it exists. I didn't dream it. But yeah, that's the, I've never found a clip. I've never seen anything. It's never talked about. But yeah, the yellow house the, with, the, with the abandoned cloud. <laughs> why are we even functioning the television that we used to watch? I mean, good grief. And these are just the edited highlights of the horror. Well, if anyone else up there can share the delights on the yellow house, please do. Uh, Ray, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, Tim, I've gone on, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very, very much. One by Tim Worthington. The story of comedy at BBC Radio 1 from Kenny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. For more details, timworthington.blogspot.co.uk.